Welcome to the In the Oil Patch radio show, broadcasting from the SR Trident studio. SR Trident, where safety is a culture, not just a word. In the Oil Patch radio show with Kimball Auto is where you will hear the latest in the oil, gas, and energy industry from a wide variety of industry experts, elected officials, and more, right here on In the Oil Patch radio show. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined by Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi. We caught up with him here at Sarah Week, and we also got to speak to Diego Mesa, who is Colombian's Minister of Energy and Mining. They're doing some amazing things there in Colombia, too. I'd like to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. The cover story is Heidi Gill, the CEO of Urban Solutions. What an amazing company, and she's doing amazing things, her and her company in Colorado. Be sure to visit shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com to read all about Heidi and Urban Solutions. I'd also like to tell you about a new date set for our State of Energy with Shell Magazine 2022 that is coming to the Houston Club downtown on April 21st, starting at 11.30 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, as well as featured moderator, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, Sean Strawbridge. The panelists will include Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior Vice President of Liquid Pipeline for Embridge, and Bruce Fullenwider, the Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets on State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, please see, please go to shellmagticketleap.com backslash state of energy. That's shellmag.ticketleap.com backslash state of energy. And we will see you there. And now it's time for me to welcome on my co-host and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in the oil patch. We are at a live remote covering Sarah Week, the granddaddy oil and gas conference yeah, of them all. It's the it's biggest the one gold, of the year. Golden Globe Award type of thing in, in this industry. And uh, boy, it's been impressive with the people who have come to speak at the conference. Uh, they had uh, Carrie here. We've also heard from Stephen Green, who's the president for Chevron North America. We've had uh, Department of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm here. A lot of interesting stuff, David, in, in what they're talking about. Vicki Holcomb was talking about how Oxy is moving into carbon capture and how they're going to achieve net zero. Very- yeah, they have a big project, uh, several big projects in carbon capture. Yeah, there was a lot to discuss here, um, and, and it's still not over. It's still going on until Friday, but just to hear how the energy sector, oil and gas, is moving into diversification uh, in their transition, and everyone yeah. is different into the energy transition. It's just been a really uh, eye-opening but pleasant surprise to hear everybody kind of getting on board and, and, uh, and doing their part to address climate change and, and other areas that uh, the Biden administration and, and I guess world leaders have been pushing to try to increase and enhance our path of uh, net zero. But mm-hmm. let's move. Let's let's get to um, oil prices because once again they have been yo-yoing, um, <laughs> with no surprise, right? Russia and the Ukraine situation is is also spiraling out of control. WTI price skyrocketed to a high of one twenty-seven earlier this week, but it fell back to one ten a few days later. Is how much of this is stemming from the events coming out of the war with Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think this past week, uh, probably all of it was, uh, frankly. Uh, it's that. I mean, another factor, of course, is, is we have declining inventories for crude storage all over the world. 
And that's just due to a market that's undersupplied and was undersupplied before any of the Ukraine stuff started. And, and of course, the consequence to consumers is that we have record high gasoline prices now that uh, probably just are going to continue to go up. And, and uh, yeah, I, on Tuesday, you know, the president banned Russian imports uh, into the U.S. Uh, it's about half a million barrels a day we had been importing. And uh, I was glad to see that. I mean, I think that's the right thing to do. I wish that that would become a permanent thing. There's no reason why we need Russian oil in the United States. But the Correct. market reacted to that, probably overreacted to it because it is a small volume of oil, really. And uh, but it came back down later in the week due to a variety of factors. So uh, there was some, you know, talk among OPEC plus countries that they might uh, further increase exports, um, you know, on Thursday or Wednesday. And then on Thursday, they kind of backed off of that. And so, you know, it's just a very unstable situation right now. And this is the kind of volatility we're going to foresee for the foreseeable future. Well, you know, the one thing I do hope is the areas that are purchasing Russian oil, maybe it will wake them up, like hopefully Europe has woken up to, this is not such a great mm -hmm. idea for you guys to be beholden to Russia, um, because they're a little insane with some of the stuff that they're doing, and you might want to consider it and find an alternative solution. <laughs> let's, um, <clears throat> right, let's switch gears and talk about uh, Joe Biden begging Venezuela for more oil this week. <laughs> to offset the Russian oil <laughs> import to the U.S. And then now, of course, like you said earlier, he's banned it. My question, mm -hmm. you know, what do you think about that? And, um, I'm sh you know, Jennifer uh, Granholm, uh, the Secretary of Energy, spoke at Sarah Week yesterday. Uh, are they getting it now? Uh, she had some uh, different talking points than normal. She actually sounded mm -hmm. like... Uh, informed <laughs> on what was going on in the energy markets. Tell me what you thought. How about Tell me that? What you think. Yeah, a Biden yeah. official that's actually informed about the oil markets. What a what a refreshing development. Well, it isn't her title, <laughs> <laughs> right? But <laughs> well, it's know. the first time. You know, I mean, let's let's be honest. This this administration is is very ignorant about real energy. And uh, no, uh, asking Venezuela for more oil is is no different than asking Russia for more oil. I mean, uh, over the past. Uh, five years that as Nicolas Maduro's despotic socialist communist regime has destroyed Venezuela's economy, um, their oil industry has entered into all sorts of entanglements with Russian oil companies. And, and these two countries are very much allies now. Uh, Venezuela is the most loyal Russian ally in the Western Hemisphere. So if you're asking for more oil from Venezuela, you are essentially asking for more oil from Russia, okay? It's There's no difference here. And <laughs> yes, it is. And you're providing a financial lifeline to Vladimir Putin. So why are we doing that? It makes no sense. It, it shows the administration doesn't understand what's really happening in oil markets. And it's, it's what the Wall Street Journal editorial board called bizarre energy diplomacy in an editorial this week and they're absolutely right it's bizarre crazy um and jennifer uh granholm though also said yesterday in her talking points to sarah the crowd there that they do understand the problem with energy and that they need to produce more here in the united states so what is happening here one is saying one thing and the other one is saying the other uh between the Biden administration and the department of energy 
Well, let's all take a take a moment to give a round of applause to someone finally at long last in the Biden administration, admitting that we need more oil production from the United States domestic industry, which has an amazing capacity if the government would get out of the way to dramatically increase oil production in our own country. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a few years ago, during a 12-month span of time, our industry raised domestic production by more than 2 million barrels a day. So it's if, if the government, if this administration would just get out of the way and stop hamstringing this industry and start approving permits that they claim they're approving and really aren't, and start approving pipelines to be built to move the production once it occurs, uh, you know, we could really dramatically improve our national energy security, just like we did during the Trump administration. We have a very recent example of that. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm glad Secretary Granholm finally woke up and said something, said that, but uh, whether she really means it or not, not is, a, is an entirely different matter. And that's what we will see in the, you know, coming weeks, if you will, that is there a real desire? Because I want to remind yeah. our listeners, it was the day one of this administration that Biden, the Biden administration came in and Joe Biden personally signed an executive order to ban the Keystone Pipeline. So from day one, in my opinion, he pretty much threw it down of we are mm -hmm. going to be an anti-oil and gas administration, period. No and now as a result, we're seeing it. You're seeing it at the pumps. You're seeing it at the grocery store. Everything has gone up. We have inflation. And a lot of this is coming back to these poor policies that they have in oil and gas. And the only way of rectifying this is, is like you said, get out of the way and start uh, approving permits. Because the United States, we have the capacity, right, David, to be able to meet the demand if they would just get out of the way. That is absolutely correct. And, you know, that's what needs to happen. And, and I just... I have no faith that this administration will really do that. So we're going to see in the next coming weeks, was this just talking points and, you know, pandering to the audience, or is it really that you guys understand that, you know, it isn't just David and talk to me about this. This, this isn't just a matter of oil prices uh, or what you're paying at the pump. You know, folks need to wake up and understand now, maybe it's starting to become a matter of national security and oil has always been at the forefront of this. We are weak or than we were when we had the Trump administration. We are more reliant than ever before on foreign oil. I mean, start telling me how bad this can get or talk, talk, talk to the, you know, our listeners. We need to wake up to how we need to stay in the driver's seat when it comes down to exploration of oil and gas as we are making the energy transition. Yes, I mean, energy security is national security and we're seeing that, you know, in real time right now with this Russia situation and and my gosh, uh, I saw one gas station raise the price of regular gasoline when they got a new shipment this past week by 80 cents a gallon in one day, okay? Mm -hmm. Our economy cannot sustain that kind of, of high energy prices. We'll have a recession. It will become inevitable if this situation continues for many more weeks. And, uh, you know, so it's it's a terrible situation. The, the administration has played a big role in creating it. And uh, we have to hope that they're finally waking up to reality. They better hope. And, and we better hope because we could also, this could easily slip into a global recession as well. I oh, know yeah. that. So, well, David, uh, interesting times that we live in. But when we come back from break, 
we will be joined by Sean Strawbridge, the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi. We caught up with him here at Sarah Week, and we also got to speak to Diego Mesa, who is Colombia's Minister of Energy and Mining. They're doing some amazing things there in Colombia, too, as they're changing course and focusing on oil and gas and renewables. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident. Welcome to End the Wall Patch Radio Show. We are here at Sarah Week SP Global, and my guest who stopped by the In the Wall Patch Radio Show is Diego Mesa, who is Colombia's Minister of Energy and Mining. Diego, welcome to End the Wall Patch Radio Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about Colombia and what's going on in the oil and gas and energy sector in our country. Well, we're very excited to have you because we have not really covered Colombia and what is happening in your area pertaining to oil and gas and renewables. And we hope to get some information out of you. However, I do want to compliment that you had a press release yesterday about a new update on your wind farms occurring out there in Colombia. So we're going to cover all of that. But let's get started with, tell. you're very interesting. I'm looking at your bio and you've had a lot of experience. You're certainly not a newbie when it comes down to figuring out how to take a country and turn it into an you know, oil and gas energy powerhouse, considering using renewable energy as well. So let's begin. Tell me a little bit about your background and how did you become the, prime, the, the Minister of Energy and Mining? Sure. Uh, so I'm an economist by training. I went to school in Canada and did my uh, undergrad and grad school uh, in economics. Uh, but then I had the opportunity to start working at the IMF, at the International Monetary Fund. And it, it happens that when I was joining the fund, I had the opportunity to go into the Fiscal Affairs Department and work with two gentlemen that at the time uh, were the world authority on how to design fiscal and tax policy for oil and gas, mining and energy. So I spent about 10 years on and off at the IMF advising governments uh, throughout the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Middle East, in Latin America, on public policy for oil, gas, and mining. And um, in the interim, I stopped at the fund for about four years, and I went to Canada and worked in the private sector. I work with PricewaterhouseCoopers in their consulting practice, also advising uh, both private sector clients and provincial and federal government uh, on public policy for oil, gas, mining, and power. So after you know, 14, 15 years uh, working in, in Canada and the US, um, I had an opportunity. I was uh, offered by the Colombian president uh, who was elected at the time in 2018 to come and join his government. So you know, I decided to uh, uh, took him up and I joined uh, at the beginning of the administration. I started as a deputy uh, energy minister for two years. And then uh, in 2020, I was promoted to minister. So Diego, it's interesting to see how you all are also entering in the renewable energy sector as well. So you're focusing on oil and gas. They just produced a, a press release here at Sarah Week 
on that you guys are now entering into an MOU for some off wind. Give me an update on what's happening there. Sure. So when we started the administration back in 2018, uh, we decided that the main uh, public policy for the sector was going to be energy transition. Uh, the reason being that uh, we have a number of factors uh, that were happening at the time between 2010 and 2018. The price of the technology, especially for wind and solar, came down significantly, price reductions uh, of about 80%. And Colombia has world-class resources, both wind and solar. But we were not seeing an uptake in the Colombian market. So we decided to work on a policy framework, including fiscal incentives, regulatory incentives, bringing new companies into the country, uh, and an auction program. And we've been able to exploit now those resources that were not being exploited before. So you, you mentioned it before, uh, when we were, uh, before starting the interview, uh, with all this policy and the auctions, we've been able to award uh, contracts that are equivalent to about 100 times more installed capacity than we have back in 2018. 2018, we have two projects, about 0.2% of the power matrix was made up of variable renewable, only two small projects. Uh, now, we've awarded over 2,800, uh, and we expect to close 2022 with about 10 to 12% of the matrix uh, made up of variable renewable energy. What we announced yesterday is that, you know, after seeing the traction and all the interest that uh, has sparked in investors in Colombia, and we have, you know, companies like EDF from France, EDPR from Portugal, half a dozen Spanish companies, uh, um, French companies, UK companies entering the Colombian market, we thought about what should be next. And one thing that we did was in September, we published our roadmap for low and zero emission hydrogen or blue and green hydrogen. And we decided also to work on offshore wind. So we issued for comments the roadmap for offshore wind. And yesterday with the mayor of Barranquilla, which is the third largest country, uh, largest city in our country, uh, and Copenhagen infrastructure partners, uh, we announced the first uh, offshore wind project in Colombia, uh, which is going to be developed uh, in this city and is going to be uh, 360 megawatts of installed capacity with uh, an investment of about 1 billion US dollars. So this is a significant milestone and we know from the analysis that the consultants that were commissioned by the World Bank did that we have up to a 50 gigawatt potential in offshore wind in Colombia, in the Caribbean coast. And this is between, you know, both shallow waters and deep waters, which obviously technology will, will differ. So you've got anywhere from 12 to 22% that you're working on right now. What else is in your pipeline and how diverse do you want to make Colombia in the energy renewable? 50-50 or how uh, is, are you and your leadership seeing the future of Colombia and its energy needs? Sure. So uh, we have this focus on variable renewable energy, as I said. You know, we were starting from very low base, less than 0.2% in 2018. We'll close 2022 with about 12%. But we have a significant pipeline of both solar and wind projects for the next three to five years. Uh, our plans show us that we could have up to 4,500 megawatts in addition to what we already install. And that could take us in the next three to five years to about 20 to 25 percent of variable renewable. One thing that we haven't mentioned is that the Columbia power matrix is very clean to begin with because about two-thirds to 70 percent of our power comes from large hydropower projects. So it's renewable energy, it's what we call traditional renewable, but still it's clean uh, and uh, is, you know, it's contributing to uh, the um, 
fight against climate change that uh, Colombia has joined. So I think uh, in the medium term, you know, uh, we could have an increase of up to 20-25% from variable renewable, which also is a very good complement to hydropower because hydropower obviously uh, has variation depending uh, on the rain season. And we have uh, El Nino phenomenon, for example, which is you know the drought period that comes every two, three years, and that puts a lot of stress into our system. So with wind and with solar, we can easily manage uh, those situations. So I think you know in the long term, about 20 to 25 percent of variable renewable energy uh, sounds like a good number into our power mix. Well, thank you, Diego. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. SR Trident is a proud sponsor of State of Energy 2022 is coming to the Houston Club in downtown Houston on Thursday, April 21st, starting at 1130 a.m. The keynote speaker will be the chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission, Wayne Christian, and will feature moderator Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi, along with panelists Mike Howard, CEO of Howard Energy Partners, Phil Anderson, Senior VP of Liquid Pipelines Enbridge, and Bruce Fullen, Vice President of Argus Media. For tickets for the State of Energy Luncheon in Houston on April 21st, go to shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. That's shalemag.ticketleap.com backslash stateofenergy. Sponsored in part by SR Trident. Welcome back to the Oil Patch Radio Show. We are here at Sarah Week S&P Global. My guest is Diego. With uh, He is the Columbia Minister of Energy and Mining. Diego, before the break, you were telling us about how really engaged and committed Colombia is in the largest fleet of electric buses in Latin America. And, you know, our president, President Biden, and his State of the Union spoke on how important it was for us to try to make transition into EVs. And so I want you to cover a little bit more about where do you see Columbia going with EVs, electric vehicles and electric I mean, clearly you're doing it in your bus section, but do you see, do you have the infrastructure, do you have a plan for all of your citizens to be converting into EVs? And how prominent is it right now in your country? Yes, we're working also on the infrastructure, which is mainly the charging stations. That's something that we regulate uh, from the Ministry of Energy and Mines with the Energy uh, Regulation Commission. Um, so we've seen a significant uptake on private vehicles as well. Uh, we've surpassed uh, Chile, Costa Rica, Dominican Republic, who used to be the leaders in EV sales in Latin America, and now Colombia leads uh, by a good margin. So. Uh, and this is possible because uh, the fiscal uh, the tax incentive that we put in place. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, if you were going to buy a combustion engine vehicle in Colombia, uh, you have to pay a VAT, a value-added tax, similar to sales tax in the U.S., that is equivalent to 19%. So we reduce that for EVs to 5%. There's also a tax on vehicles uh, that is about 3% of the value of the vehicle. We reduce that to 1%. Uh, we've also thrown in some other incentives. For example, you have to get... Uh, insurance for your vehicle. Uh, there's a 10% deduction on the insurance uh, that you re are required to uh, purchase when you when you buy a vehicle. Uh, we've also had exemptions, for example, uh, in Colombia in the main cities because of the pollution. We have restrictions on which days can you use your car. Uh, if it's a combustion engine car, if you have an EV, 
you are exempted from those uh, regulations. Uh, and also, uh, you have, for example, a special parking allocated for EVs. So, you know, there are a number of different incentives from a tax perspective, from a commercial perspective, uh, from restrictions to mobility, which we have to enforce in some of the cities uh, that have made EVs very attractive. Uh, and we know, obviously, the upfront cost of EVs is still high. But when you look at the life of the vehicle and you throw in the difference between uh, gas prices and electricity in Colombia, uh, it makes sense to have an EV. So we'll continue to foster this and we expect you know, more Colombians to uh, continue to uh, buy EVs. Well, that certainly sounds like a solution of getting Colombians to want to purchase and move to EVs. It just seems a lot more convenient and now uh, the incentives, making it worth their while. Let's talk about price of oil right now, the higher prices of oil, and how it's benefiting Colombia. Can you tell me about that? How are y'all dealing with this? Uh, uh, this is, you know, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue uh, because of the spike that we've seen over the last uh, couple of days. On balance, uh, this is positive for Colombia because we are, we are net exporters of oil. So, uh, but we need to watch for the inflationary pressures that this is bringing. So there are two channels. There's one on imported goods that we can't control. And what we've seen is a significant increase in prices, especially foods or fertilizers uh, that are needed to, to, for crops in Colombia. And uh, that's concerning. And the second channel, which is more direct, is on gasoline and diesel prices. Uh, and there we've been using, we have a stabilization fund uh, that it's used to protect the end user and you know ensure that the volatility of oil prices is not translated directly uh, into the end consumer of gasoline and diesel. But obviously this is at an expense that has to be covered by the state. So we're working on that, you know, we're using that mechanism at the moment but when you put everything on balance and you take into account the dividends by the national oil company, the taxes, the royalties that are paid by the companies, at the end, the fiscal result is positive for Colombia. But still, you know, we have that concern with inflationary pressures. That is a global phenomenon that's been uh, taking place over the last uh, few months and is now worse with what's going on in y Ukraine and, you know, the spike in prices. Diego, I do want to thank you for stopping by and talking to us about what's happening in Colombia. You're doing an amazing job. We're very, very proud to see you guys are really taking seriously diversification. Is there anything here at Sierra Week that has really impressed you before we let you go of things that you're hearing or were you able to really pick something up that you'll be able to take back home and use? So it's been a, a great uh, uh, week here in Sierra Week. I always love to come to this conference because uh, they're very insightful discussions, uh, both about what's going on with the current situation and you know, the geopolitics of uh, this crisis, you know, and the implications from an economic point of view. But also, uh, there are a lot of discussion about technology for the sector that's going to be needed very soon. For example, carbon capture and storage, uh, hydrogen, you know, other ways in which we can use technology to help reduce uh, the carbon footprint of the energy and oil and gas sector. And here, you know, coming and listening to the experts is always very enlightening. So I'm very happy to be here. And thank you very much for inviting me to your show today. Thank you, Diego. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com.
And now it's time for me to welcome on our guest, Sean Strawbridge, who is the CEO of the Port of Corpus Christi. Sean, thank you for coming to the In the Oil Patch studio here at Sarah Week as SMP Global. Thank you for having me, Kim. You are a regular with our show regularly. Let me start by asking you overall the theme that we're experiencing here at Sarah Week. Is it a theme that you can embrace? Do you see a lot of changes occurring here, announcements, technology, things like that, that are helping pave the way for oil and gas companies uh, and the industry as a whole to make the transition into a renewable or uh, decarbonization type of energy industry? Well, there's a lot to unpack in an answer to that question, Kim. Uh, I would say overall the theme of this conference, Sarah Week in 2022, has really been one of concern. We, the, 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 the conference itself uh, is timely, given what's going on in Ukraine and the Russia invasion and now the sanctions that have been placed on Russia by the United States and some of our Western European allies banning the importation of Russian crude and natural gas. We've also seen, I think, positive constructive dialogue by cabinet members of the Biden administration. We had Secretary Kerry here earlier in the week and today we had Secretary Granholm, uh, the uh, energy secretary under President Biden. And the message that's been delivered by members of the Biden administration is the oil and gas industry certainly has a role to play in atmospheric decarbonization and clean energy solutions, but we have an immediate need to produce more oil and gas, American oil and gas, to not only meet our growing demand here in this country, but certainly the demands of our Western European allies and our partners around the world. There's a lot in that statement. First, if we were to take Russia completely off the global markets, there is not enough oil that's being produced today to backfill that void. Uh, that's certainly concerning in the near term as that will drive up more energy costs and inflationary pressures. And we're already seeing that today with the global uh, WTI and, and benchmark, uh, crew, uh, Brent benchmarks for crude oil. We're certainly seeing that in the natural gas space. But longer term, we're going to need to, in my opinion, we're going to need to reduce the bureaucratic hurdles that have been placed on particularly American oil and gas companies on the regulatory side. Uh, permits are becoming further and farther between and, and they take longer. Uh, they're much more costly uh, if they're ever issued. Uh, that's certainly disconcerting for us at the Port of Corpus Christi. We've had permits that have been with the federal government now for, in some cases, as long as four years. And there's been a lot that's happened in the last four years. So I think, again, the overall theme uh, of this conference has been concern, but it's great to see people back. This is the first time that Sarah Week has been held in person since 2019. And it's great to see people back here at the conference having a great exchange of, of ideas and, and information. And we're confident that longer term, certainly us at the Port of Corpus Christi are well positioned to take full advantage of any increases in energy production here in the United States. I think when Sarah Week uh, set this date, they had no 
obvious idea. They had no idea that we would be facing a Russian invasion into Ukraine and how it would completely spin energy prices out of control globally, as well as all the concerns. And you talked about the regulatory climate that, that the industry is dealing with. But let's take it back to the Port of Corpus Christi. It's an amazingly important port energy-wise. People really don't understand the place that the Port of Corpus Christi takes. And I'm not talking about just in Texas. I'm talking about the United States of America. Tell me a little bit about uh, where you guys are, most importantly, the regulatory environment that you have been facing with this administration, and how did it differ from President Trump's administration? Well, I mean, if you want to look at the overall importance of the Port of Corpus Christi, it's the largest gateway for U.S.-produced energy exports from the United States. We're solidly number one in crude oil exports with nearly 60% market share. We're number two in liquefied natural gas exports. And we're number three in refined product exports. Uh, that makes the Port of Corpus Christi uniquely positioned as a critical, national critical infrastructure uh, as we certainly do our part to try and reduce the trade deficit by facilitating uh, those exports uh, for our customers. We've invested over a billion dollars in the last five years in infrastructure in the Port of Corpus Christi alone to meet what we expected to be growing demand. Uh, we certainly didn't expect a pandemic, which had a major impact on demand destruction. Uh, we certainly were hopeful that the Biden administration was going to be a little more moderate in its position uh, with oil and gas, and, and certainly oil and gas producers in this country. Uh, what we saw, however, was a, a climate agenda that unfairly included oil and gas and shown a negative light on oil and gas. And we're certainly committed to the energy transition, uh, energy transformation as we like to call it. Uh, global energy demand continues to grow. Uh, we don't believe that we've seen peak oil yet. Uh, we think peak oil won't happen for another one to perhaps five decades. But ultimately, recognizing that longer term, those innovations in cleaner energy supplies are going to take years to reach market scale. They're going to be extremely expensive. And in the meantime, we've got this today burgeoning demand for energy, all forms of energy. And we've got to continue to meet that demand, and we've got to do it economically. Otherwise, we are going to send markets into a tailspin. We're going to send economies. Uh, into recessions, and that is not going to bode well for mankind across the world. Well, and that kind of brings me up to the, uh, the next question I want to ask you, which is, you know, we talked about the role, that the importance, but you guys have clearly had a lot of roadblocks from this administration. Um, the Trump administration had, given, had allocated funds for you for the port to deepen and widen, understanding the importance strategically of where the Port of Corpus Christi sits and being able to export and import. And now we have a new administration and you're dealing with different hurdles. To compound the problem, we have a ban on Russian oil, which you said, we take that offline, we're gonna have another real problem, which could lead to a global recession. When we come back from break, I want for you to, to let's get into that, but I really wanna break down how important with this ban is it that the Port of Corpus Christi keep exporting and importing. And is it a matter of national security? We have to take a break and listen to the World Catch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
Join Roseland Oil and Gas Marketing and Consulting for a couple of great events coming up. On March 21st is the West Texas Clay Shootout at the Midland Shooters Association. Registration starts at 7.30 a.m. with the shooting to begin at 9. Then stay in Midland for the 8th Annual West Texas Oil and Gas Convention, March 23rd to 24th at the Midland County Horseshoe Pavilion. This year's convention will feature inside and outside exhibits, heavy equipment displays, and the taste of the oil patch cook-off. To find out more about both events, go to roselandconsulting.com. That's roselandconsulting.com. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Sean, before the break, I, we were having uh, a discussion on the importance of, uh, you know, where we are in, in, in light of what's happening with Russia invading Ukraine, and oil prices seem to be spinning out of control globally. I think also uh, we could be facing a global recession uh, if this continues. The Biden administration doesn't really seem to have clear talking points on where we're going uh, pertaining to this, uh, pretty much begging OPEC to open the spigots, if you will. But there's infrastructure issues we have here. There's a whole bunch of things that most people don't realize how complicated the situation is. Break it down for our listeners to help them understand the, the really significant role that the Port of Corpus Christi must play, and that you guys must get funding from the government and assistance. If we're going to stay energy independent, how important is your port to achieving that? And is it a matter of national security as well? Well, Kim, Certainly, the Port of Corpus Christi is the, the, the primary local steward of the waterway and the assets that we own, uh, the terminals that we develop and lease to our partners. Uh, and the Corpus Christi ship channel is actually a federalized channel. Most of our navigable waterways in the United States are federalized. That means it's the federal government that has a responsibility to maintain those channels at a sufficient depth for safe and competitive passage of vessels. And that agency is the United States Army Corps of Engineers. They receive appropriations from Congress and recommendations from the administration for appropriations each year to perform their duties in maintaining those navigable waterways. And it's no different at the Port of Corpus Christi. Sometimes those navigable waterways need to be improved to handle larger vessels, for example. And that's certainly the case with some of the major ports around the country and the Port of Corpus Christi. We have a Corpus Christi Ship Channel Improvement Project that's a federally authorized project. Congress authorized that project. In fact, Congress has authorized that project three times. Once under the uh, George W. Bush administration and twice under the Obama administration. Uh, but the first dollar of appropriations for that project was not funded until President Trump came to office. And it was during President Trump's tenure that nearly 75% of that project cost was appropriated. Under the Biden administration, unfortunately, we've had now three different tranches of funding opportunities. First was President Biden's 2022 budget, which we did not receive any funding nor did any other port in Texas. 
Second was the Army Corps of Engineers work plan, which if understanding how the federal government funds projects and funds operations of the government, at the end of each fiscal year, there's an amount of money that's usually left over that won't be spent in that fiscal year. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget, under the President's guidance, asks the Corps of Engineers, as it does other federal agencies, what it can do to perform using those leftover dollars, and we call that core work plan money. And the Corps has submitted, submits its work plan of what it's capable of performing with those additional dollars. Under the Corps' work plan for 2022, even though the, the, the district, the Galveston district in Texas, told the Office of Management and Budget it had the capability to do more for the Port of Corpus Christi, it was not funded in that tranche. And then the third tranche was the bipartisan infrastructure package. With the exception of Houston's container ports, which containers uh, carry primarily imported finished consumer goods, 65% of which are originate in mainland China, no other port in Texas received any money in the bipartisan infrastructure package either. So that was three bites at the apple, so to speak, and yet we didn't receive any funding. The dangerous precedent that that set for us at the Port of Corpus Christi is now you have a project that is 75% funded and in various stages of completion. It's a four-phase project. Phase one is completed. Phases two and three are currently under construction. The phase four has not received any funding for the federal, from the federal government. The port has a cost-sharing responsibility, the Port Authority. Right. We've raised all our money. In fact, we've transferred most of that money to the Corps already. But the Corps will not work if it is not appropriated the necessary dollars to perform that work. And in this case, for the last year, it has not received any dollars to complete the Corpus Christi Ship Channel Improvement Project. That's a dangerous precedent because now we have American taxpayer dollars already spent, and yet we have a project that could stall if it doesn't receive that project closeout funding. It's about $155 million of federal funding that's required to finish that project. If we don't receive those appropriations, let's see, we, I mean, the Corps of Engineers, those dollars don't come to the Port of Corpus Christi, then you could conceivably have a channel to nowhere. Oh. And that is uh, bad policy in our, in our belief. At the end of the day, I think we have every confidence, given what's going on now mm -hmm. in the geopolitical theater, that we will receive that funding. We're certainly having discussions with the Office of Management and Budget, with the Assistant Secretary of the Army's office, certainly with the Corps of Engineers, and whenever possible, and it's been difficult to have connection with this administration. We've had many attempts to try and meet with members of this administration. Uh, COVID has certainly been a problem in that regard, but we think that uh, there's a conversation to be had. Uh, we have every uh, intention to continue to lean in on this, uh, this administration's climate agenda. Uh, we have ambition for hydrogen production, for scale, for exports. Right. We have every ambition for carbon capture use and storage. We think we are uniquely positioned from an efficacy standpoint to develop those initiatives using innovative technologies, many of which are being represented by the great companies that are attending Cyril Week here today. Uh, but having those conversations has certainly proven difficult. It's unfortunate that it's taken the Ukrainian crisis to elevate those conversations to the level that they needed to be elevated. But here we are today, and we're certainly uh, hopeful that now that we are having those conversations, uh, we will see more in 
uh, appropriations and certainly more in support for the initiatives that the Port of Corpus Christi is engaged in in carbon capture and hydrogen production. Last question, about, about a minute left. The, you, I'm glad you talked about the energy transition the Port of Corpus Christi is dedicated and committed to, but with, that, with the lack of the funding from this administration, do you see any of these projects, if they have any significance if you do not, if you stay uh, in a limbo situation much longer? Are these projects also potentially able to get to fruition, or are these going to have a problem too because the port's not completed with their deepening and widening project? Well, certainly there's a connection to the lack of funding for the deepening and widening projects and our ability to really deliver on some of these clean energy solutions. But make no mistake about it, this governments around the world have committed to atmospheric decarbonization, but you just can't commit rhetoric. You have to commit resources. You have to commit uh, streamlining regulations and streamlining permitting processes. If they don't do that, then it's, it's purely political rhetoric. We fully anticipate that uh, under the leadership of Secretary Granholm, there will be billions of dollars spent over the next five years to de-risk these innovative initiatives in cleaner technologies, and we're certainly committed to taking part of that and working as a good partner uh, with the federal government to see those initiatives to market realization and, and ultimate fruition. Very good. Well, Sean Strawbridge, CEO of Port of thank you for stopping by and talking to us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Kim. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.